Welcome to Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. This podcast is a collection of historical and philosophical references, contemplations, lectures, and exchanges with David M. Valadez, his students, and guests. Podcasts are recorded on the mat at the Ascension Center in Southern California and in studio. These podcasts are provided to cultivate the warrior on the way and to add light to their path. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to this podcast episode. This one is on the mat, but I am here alone. There's no class. It's the Christmas holiday. Um, this episode, we're going to talk about strength. Strength in Aikido, strength in Budo training. And, and here I am referring to the actual physical strength, not strength of character or strength of spirit, but of course, because those self divisions are ultimately false, there's sure to be some overlap. Uh, a note on podcasting as I see it. I think the value of the medium is that it's kind of a free-for-all. Um, and I kind of utilize it that way. I kind of discuss what comes to mind. Um, they're, they're all kind of sand mandalas for me in, in which that there is a lot of thought put into them, but ultimately they're just moments, uh, conversations, like conversations are moments. Uh, there's a lot of improv in them, and ultimately they have an end, and in the end a kind of disappearance. Uh, so there's no real preparation in them other than a topic selection um, but outside of that, you know, I just speak as things come to my mind. Those things are usually driven by the deshi at the dojo, their needs. Um, I'd say that's actually always the driving factor. As I've said elsewhere, I don't really have a a drive to correct Aikido or correct Aikidoka not training under me I, I don't see the value in that um, I see delusion only in that path some sort of unquenched will to power and the delusion of constancy I think the art is more free and infinite and even ambiguous and vague from a certain point of view and actually mandates that openness, which is not to say it's a free-for-all or I agree with everything 
that I see out there. I don't, in fact. It's more that I am not motivated to address it, that I see it as entirely different from what I'm doing, even if it shares the same name or the same costume. I see it as relative to what I'm doing, as I often say, as banking or fishing is. So there's no motivation there to correct or to edit or even to comment. But I do think for Deshi, it's important to understand a teacher's point of view and to understand it as fully as possible. And that's quite different from following it. I mean, one presumes the other. But I think even if Adeshi opts not to follow it, it should be based upon a complete understanding of that teacher's point of view. I think Adeshi does themselves a disservice when the closest they get to the teacher is a matter of interpreting the teacher's perspective. I remember in graduate school when I was studying religion, uh, it was one professor who brought this to my mind because everyone has their view of religion and what it should be. And ironically, not, not unlike Aikido Deshi, uh, your first year in graduate school, you are far from an informed scholar of religion, yet nonetheless, everyone had an opinion. It was like the topic of religion was so felt to be universally human that any human being therefore had a right to comment upon it and to comment strongly enough where the feeling was they were defending truth against falsehood. And so there was this poor professor who was tasked with uh, quelling or struggling with all of these egos that had no humility by which they would suspend for the moment their opinion and uh, learn the field better before they offered it. This poor professor had to run this seminar, your basic entry graduate level seminar, and I thought his solution to that problem was both simple and extremely profound, and I have ended up using it many times in my own studies in and outside of the art, and also as a way of training my deshi in the best ways to serve themselves by practicing the best ways of learning. So this professor's technique was 
that he would test us or assign us papers, and the assignment was not to offer our opinion of religion or of a given religious tradition or even a moment in time or in history, but instead he would task us with um, giving the particular point of view of one of the authors we were reading or studying. And you looking back, you might say, oh, that's so obvious, but uh, you would be amazed at how many people would fail these kind of long answer or short essay exams because it would be something like, um, please explain and and um, critique or support the notion of axis mundi in Mercheria Eliada's assigned readings. And uh, what everyone would do is they would go on and just explain their own understanding of what an axis mundi is, whether they agreed with the concept or not, and they would fail to explain what Eliada meant by it. And when you have a test made up of, you know, 10 questions like that, and you fail to answer any of them because you only provided your point of view, you were going to be surprised with a 0%. So in that sense, I think Deshi should come to their teacher's Perspective One, knowing it is a perspective, but committed to being able to understand it and discuss it and share it. And to know it at that level seems important. And as I said before, that is the reasoning behind these podcasts, first. And secondly... Maybe others might find it interesting. So we share it. Recently, in our classes, we came face to face with the issue of strength and thereby my understanding of its role. And... Someone through our social media outlets commented and uh, sent me a private message requesting to share the little passage I wrote on it. I think I can say up front, following the lack of need to alter the world according to how I see it, or the art, I'm always surprised with people requesting, you know, the capacity to share these things. Uh, Anything that we put out on social media is no longer mine. It is like that sand mandala. It's been wiped away. So anybody can use anything, I don't care, even if they say they said it. I have no interest in that stuff. 
but they shared in their request that they were having an issue or they were discussing the issue of strength at the same time. And I think that makes sense because I think strength is often a more complex issue in the Aiki arts, in an art like Aikido. And I think that, as I see in my own deshi, a lot of them and a lot of people do not think it through. And this episode is going to be a matter of me trying to think it through for them. And for you, if you find it helpful. We often hear in Aikido that one should not use strength. And I would say yes and no. I think all things... that reach the core of our humanness, like Aikido, like Budo, are always going to be more complicated than some sort of dichotomy might present. So let's get into it. Let's, let's look at, I think, the no not using strength in Aikido. That I think everyone can kind of understand that. But I think when we look at the yes to strength, when we look at that side of things, I think we're going to come back and re-understand, even better understand, what not using strength in Aikido actually means. So let's look at why I would say you need to have strength in Aikido. Um, And let's say up front that I feel that the deshi who is weak, physically weak, uh, is in many ways incapable of learning the art and developing skill in the art. So even if we say one should not use strength in Aikido, I would add the caveat, one cannot be weak and do Aikido. And from that point of view, I think there's several ways that strength becomes important. And why at our dojo in Sension Center, um, I had to alter our training curriculum to include strength training. In earlier, in earlier decades, in the 70s, for example, uh, people who did martial arts were, you know, kind of alpha athletes. Um, we did other sports that we were champions in. And... We were drawn to the martial arts and we had that same mentality and people already learned and knew well the benefits of being strong, being physically fit. And and as such, there was a kind of innate athleticism to Budo training 
in decades past. And, and even when you perhaps adopted more of the traditional exercises associated with Japanese arts, um, while they were trying, um, while, of course, they were done at a level and an intensity at which you wanted to vomit or vo did vomit, um, or at a level where you felt like you were going to die or you had to struggle with quitting, um, it was not something out of the ordinary or unexpected by the practitioner. As an athlete, that was the norm. Uh, but over the decades of teaching, I have noticed that uh, Budo is not drawing uh, athletes. I think there's a reason for that. I think there's many reasons for that. Um, I think just overall, culturally, in the United States, if we look at other statistical truths, we see that there is an increase in the obesity epidemic. Um, we see uh, increases in uh, the number of hours we spend working, uh, reduction in uh, physical labor jobs. Uh, most of our work hours are sitting at a computer. Um, we're seeing uh, obesity in younger and younger in children. Uh, we're seeing hormone issues in children uh, that are related to uh, a lack of strength and an increase in estrogen. Uh, and fatty tissues in young boys. Uh, we see our elementary schools reduce the amount of recess and physical education. Uh, an increase in video games and, and uh, online entertainment replacing outdoor play. I mean, you can go on and on, and I just think culturally, socially, uh, we are less athletic as a mass, as a population. And that is the pool from which Budo chooses its practitioners. And thereby you're going to have less opportunity for athletes and more opportunity for non-athletic people. I also think over the decades Budo has um, kind of uh, advertised itself in a way that it does not draw the athletes as it once did. Where decades past, athletes were drawn to the uh, competitive motivation brought about by the defeat of others, Pluto uh, is now not sold that way. It does not present itself that way. 
it it tends to overall generally speaking present itself as some sort of psychological and or emotional support perhaps for some a spiritual outlet um some sort a of cultural artifact but what is there in budo overall is no longer um this sense of victory over another and as a result you can have many classes all over the world where there's really nothing athletic about it um making it far less effective in just generating overall fitness that it didn't always used to be that way this is a modern trend i think that trend or those reasons those advertising reasons these larger cultural shifts where we moved away from the athlete um are also compounded by uh mma and uh jujitsu competition and a larger segment of the gender and age group that might have in the past had a concern with competition or physical fitness are more driven towards those arenas and less driven towards budo today so it's not uncommon that a budo dojo uh like ours for example was facing the fact that we require high degrees of physical fitness of strength but we had pulled many people who had no athletic background no basic eye hand coordination um no basic sense of balance um and no operational or functional strength so we were left with a dilemma uh at first i would try to motivate people to work out on their own to understand their responsibility in in even in terms of understanding their teacher's way um but i think as you'll see later in in what i'm going to try to say that the cultivation of strength operates at levels very central to self cultivation and if budo is a path of self cultivation then it is paramount that we include the latter or the uh, yes the latter and the former so after that was not working people were not doing the right kind of strength training or were not disciplined enough to do the right kind of strength training it was a matter of well we need to change our curriculum and we started including strength training classes in our regular weekly training and then it worked out well as uh, you know for me is included because 
that way I was able to get oftentimes a second workout on top of all the regular martial arts classes. I was able to get a second body conditioning session in a day, and I think it is important that uh, people have um, two body conditioning sessions per day versus one on top of all the other training. So we focused in on uh, the use of kettlebells. It's a very economical and portable way uh, to include strength training in the dojo. They also are very conducive towards what I would call operational fitness. In particular, you can gain strength without the associated loss of mobility because Budo will utilize strength and benefits greatly from strength, but because it is a matter of weapons defense, uh, of weapons fighting, mobility is actually held in priority over strength, and so you cannot condition yourself for strength at the cost of mobility. And kettlebells and how they are uh, organized and utilized can allow for strength training without that loss of mobility. And then also associated with that, we included um, body weight exercises, uh, push-ups, pull-ups, flutter kicks, air squats, plyo boxes, um, rope jumps, things like that. Uh, And these are important because these stress a operational fitness in terms of weight to strength ratio. So somebody, for example, who can be or feel very strong but cannot do pull-ups is going to have a poor strength to weight ratio for weapons fighting. Um, And so these kind of exercises, aside from if you do them correctly, can help you work with uh, center development and your four-corner organization, uh, will also alert a practitioner to whether they might have to adapt their nutritional intake to allow for a decrease in body weight so as to have a better strength-to-weight ratio. I I think pull-ups are very indicative of that. But even though we added this kind of training, um, the reality of human beings are that they stay in their comfort zone and a deshi will come to a dojo kind of like a salad bar. They will pick this or that because it's comfortable for them. It's in, 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 in jives with where they are now. It, it is uh, sustaining their current homeostasis regarding their sense of self. And you'll have many people who will, will not come to body conditioning or will not come to it enough times per week. And they raise the issue at a verbal or intellectual level, well, we need to talk about this because you're not quite understanding the role of strength training in Budo training. What I tend to point out 
at such times is, a, you know, a series of ways that you can explain that strength training is very important to one's overall Budo training. And I think one of the first ones is to look at training as a practice, not as an academic exercise, which is an oxymoronic term like jumbo shrimp. Um, And that means that it's a matter of my body moving over time repeatedly. Uh, When you look at it that way, you understand that training is going to abuse your body. It is going to stress it. It is going to challenge it physically. And by challenge, we mean the potential for failure and the possibility of being unable to train. It it reminds me of in the law enforcement academy, there's a lot of people who come to it and have no clue about what is going on and what to expect. Uh, I was fortunate in that my agency offered what was called a pre-academy, and it was two weeks of a kind of hell hell week for two weeks. Um, It was physically challenging to the point that the actual law enforcement academy seemed like a break, some sort of easier class. But at the beginning of the law enforcement academy, those people who were not fortunate enough to suffer a more intense program called the pre-academy, the instructors there were constantly yelling at them that they did not prepare for it. They did not prepare for the academy, and therefore it's obvious they don't want to succeed, and they should quit. If you look at that, I mean, what are they trying to tell you there? They're trying to tell you that there is a toil that will happen on your body just over the practice of development. And that does not change for Budo training. If you are unhealthy, which would include weakness, you will not be able to suffer the turmoils of the training. You will become injury-prone. Your healing potential will be reduced. The rate at which you heal will also be reduced. And all of those things mean time off the mat, and time off the mat means not training. And not training means not developing skill. Strength is so paramount to our health that one of the current uh, tests for our own uh, mortality is asking people to get on the floor and then to stand themselves back up from the floor. So a doctor would take an elderly patient and, you know, they're doing their kind of assessment of them, they'll have them do this test. And there's a correlation 
between a patient's capacity to successfully navigate this, to get down on the floor, sit on the floor, and to get up off the floor. There is such a strict correlation between that capacity or lack thereof and the proximity of that organism, that human being, that patient's death. And we will see people come to Budo training and they have a hard time getting up and down from the mat, following a throw or a pin. And, and by this current medical assessment, these are sick people. These are dying people. And yet they come to one of the apex performance levels for human beings. Budo. And then harder than that, the Aiki forms of Budo. This is not setting ourselves up for success. And like those law enforcement instructors yelling at those people who didn't get in shape, didn't get strong, didn't get a running base, they're not prepared. They can't learn it. We have to make their strength cultivation, their health actually part of the training because their lack thereof means they cannot train. And there's other things that go with an absence of strength. It's not just a kind of physical mortality. I mean, current studies have shown that strength training or strength cultivation or the lack thereof is correlated to things like depression, right? It's coordinated to things like hormone balance. We, I mentioned that earlier. Um, you know, one, and also your metabolic rates. So if we take men, for example, uh, muscle mass has a lot to do with testosterone levels. Testosterone levels have a lot to do with uh, emotional stability in males, uh, and also uh, muscle mass has a lot to do with your metabolic rates. And all of these things can spiral out of control or be made very easily back into control through the development of muscle mass and thereby through the utilization of strength training. Right? But uh, that said, I think there's also uh, an emotional health component to this. Having trained people over the decades, I have noticed that... Um, people will emotionally know when they're strong and when they're weak. And there's a kind of unconscious sense of frailty that accompanies a person who is lacking in muscle mass. And that emotional weakness will show up in all kinds of ways on the mat and throughout one's Budo practice. There's always a kind of holding back that happens, just as anybody would uh, when they feel frail. And much of what we do in Budo 
is about presence, um, is about being in the now, is about entering, is about being the center of a technique. And none of those things can be possible with this holding back. So just in that sense, in, in having somebody, a deshi, work to just cultivate muscle mass, you will see these huge changes across the board in their mood stability, in their emotional sense of whether they are feeling frail or not, in their hormone balance, in their metabolic rate, um, and of course in their own mortality. And almost whether you become skilled at Aikido or not, I would say that just do that. That is plenty, plenty. But as I said earlier, if I, if I do not have this kind of health base that is derived from strength, I will not be able to suffer the turmoils of the physical investment that is necessary for skill development. I will not be able to train daily. And if I do, I will not be able to train the required four to six hours. My body will just not be able to do it. I will get injured more easily. I may not heal. And if I do heal, I will take longer to heal than if I was stronger. So for this health component alone, strength is and must be a part of Aikido training. Extending on this sense of frailty that comes with not being strong. And it's not a matter of, uh, you know, of course somebody who can squat, you know, hundreds of pounds and bench hundreds of pounds, you're going to see that kind of emotional um, security in them, uh, undoubtedly. But I have seen this emotional security in people who uh, are, have achieved that kind of operational fit strength to weight ratio. They will have it too. You, you don't need to be the world record power lifter to have that strength and to, and to have that kind of strength that develops that kind of emotional security that prevents that sense of frailty that's operating on you. Um, sometimes I've seen it go the other way. It depends on what you're doing. Uh, the person with a, a functionally fit or operationally fit strength-to-weight ratio can often maintain that sense of confidence where the person who is, you know, the world record powerlifter can't. You know, if you, if you add some sort of aerobic, aerobic task to whatever you're doing, you can see that other person start having a sense of frailty. Um, but in addressing our frailty at an emotional level and even at a physical level, 
you're going to see that is not a very easy thing to do. It is quite difficult. Uh, it's going to require all of you. Your, your, your chance or your, the, the opportunity to have a salad bar budo or to half-ass uh, your practice for the sense, you know, with the aspirations of developing this strength, it's just not going to happen. If you come into the dojo and you are physically weak, you do not have an operational fitness, your strength-to-weight ratio is poor, you're either too heavy uh, for your strength or you're too weak for your weight, um, or you have this emotional sense of frailty, to address that, you're going to have to do Budo fully because it's going to require you to stop being you. You're going to have to change you. And that means you can't half-ass your Budo training. So in taking a body or a you from weak to strong, it is going to be a spiritual practice. You're going to find that out. You're going to have to struggle with sacrifice and commitment and discipline and fear. You're going to have to battle against the homeostasis of comfort, of ease, of convenience. And you cannot do that, but at a spiritual level. And so just in making strength a component that you should have and must have in your Budo training, you will by default make your Budo training a spiritual practice. There's no other way to bring that kind of body change. There's no other way. And all you have to do is start that. Start start that Task yourself, I need to be strong. And you're going to see, oh my goodness, this is not so simple. It might start simple, right? You might start with three days a week, I'm going to do body conditioning. And in a matter of a couple months, you're going to find, oh, that is very hard. That's very hard to do. I mean, look at the uh, fitness industry. They put to shame Budo Dojo in terms of overturn and attrition rate and seasonal rushes, right? The New Year's coming. They, they look forward to this. This is like hunting season for them, right? The New Year comes. Everyone's going to make that New Year's resolution, and they're all going to get in shape. They're going to join the gyms. But then they're going to quit because it's very difficult to make real changes at a bodily level. Very difficult. And it is difficult things that make us better. So strength is a very good reason or, or the cultivation of strength for this reason, right? It's, it's huge. 
It's huge. And usually when you see people who come to class year after year, can't do pull-ups, can't do push-ups, can't get up and off the mat, you're, you're looking at somebody who is stuck. They're stuck. And you see that kind of forfeiture to that homeostasis everywhere. You're going to see it everywhere. They, they don't just get stuck on weakness. They're stuck on this version of that technique, or they're stuck on this understanding of the art, or they're stuck on this is what I like to eat, I don't like other stuff. I mean, it just goes on and on. I also think um, there's a training component, and, and I kind of touched on this earlier. Um, but I think it's not coincidental that Budo has many mats filled with people trying to do the apex sport, which is combat, um, and then to do, like I said, one of the apex aspects of that, the Aikido, uh, which is very difficult to do athletically, physically, extremely difficult. I don't think it's a coincidence that the, there's mats all over where you have, uh, they're populated by non-athletic Aikidoka. Ironically, in light of what I just said, um, and training schedules where either the dojo only offers classes a few days a week or a few hours a day, and or in conjunction, practitioners who uh, only train a few hours a week. I think there's a kind of unconscious acceptance that denies the fact that we as human beings across the gambit of bodily cultivations require daily exposure and require daily exposure at a level consisting of four to six hours a day. If you look at expertise in any kind of physical activity, you are usually going to see that pattern. So if you look at, for example, any sport, somebody that wants to master that sport is by default going to be competing at an international level and you're going to see them training at, in, with those numbers near either daily or near daily and somewhere four to six hours a week or a day I'm sorry but and only because it depends on the the need for recovery the remaining hours that day are built into recovery but that is what human performance requires. But here we are in Aikido, and people don't train that way. Uh, and so people don't need to be able to train that way. And so things like strength is not that important. 
But this is a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy in mediocrity. Right? We're going to make strength not important because we don't train at a level wherein we would actually become skilled and therefore strength is not necessary. We need to change that. Each person needs to, tra- to change that. If, if to, you know, to, to come to skill requires those trials of bodily stress. There's just no other way. And the body has to survive that stress. And strength is one of the surest ways of guaranteeing that you survive that stress. I mean, much of training... I would say all of it, all of training can be understood from the mechanical process of generating an adaptation via the application of stress. And since Budo is a body-mind practice, thereby the body is going to be stressed. You can look at strength structurally and say strength is the capacity to endure stress. This makes strength central to Budo training. I also think there's a martial component to strength. Um, and let me, give me some time here as I think my way through this. As I said in the beginning, it's true, I would say, I would agree with it. It is true. Aikido does not require strength. But I would like to draw a distinction between the training in and the cultivation of skill in Aikido and fighting. And here's how I would draw that distinction. In training and in the cultivation of skill, the goal is advancement. Technical advancement. But in fighting, the goal is victory or not dying. And this means if my goal is technical advancement, I'm not going to do anything in my training, or I'm going to try not to do anything in my training that hinders technical advancement. And that would and could include 
the application of strength. But in a fight, I am not going to say, well, if I use strength, I'm going to have poor technique. So I'm not going to do it, even if it means I get killed. No. This is wrong. If it is a matter of me using my bicep and squeezing the hell out of a lateral vascular neck restraint. And that squeezing to the point of risking burning out my bicep is the difference between my life and death. I'm going to squeeze the hell out of that bicep. And thereby... The strength conditioning of that bicep has become significant. There's just no way around that. I think Deshi, who want to understand the art holistically such that there's no division between the martial and the spiritual, I think those deshi have to accept not only all that I said before, which works off of that lack of division between the martial and the spiritual, but they have to also accept that in combat, there may very well be a time where the prioritization of victory or life over death mandates that you be strong. And such a deshi should have no problem with that. They should understand that. They should accept it. And acceptance here means that their four to six hours a day includes strength training. Now, what about the second part of that sentence? So yes, there's no... You, you don't need strength to do Aikido. Um, I've been answering, yes, you do, but there is, as I said, an agreement with, no, you don't. And I've kind of already hinted at it. But I'm going to come at it from a different, a slightly different point of view. So, as was just stated, to become technically advanced in the art because of the nature of the art is to not use or not be reliant upon our muscular strength. This is is one way how you measure skill. 
I like to talk about skill development in the art with four categories. I understand that I'm going to give you five. It's just that I don't consider the first category even a matter of skill in the art. So I call it level zero. Level zero in the art is when the uke choreographs everything. They fall when they're not being thrown. They follow when they're not being adhered. And I, I, I think you see that kind of Aikido, and I don't think it's coincidence. I think you can use the, the explanations I gave above that there's a health reason, there's an emotional reason, a spiritual reason, there's a training reason, and there's a martial reason. There's reason. These reasons are there for why you see that in level zero you also see weak people. That's who does that kind of Aikido. It's not a coincidence. It's not even a matter that it's allowed. You're allowed to be weak and practice that kind of Aikido. There's there's a structural homogeneity there. Then level one. Level one is when somebody's muscling. They're muscling in their Aikido architectures. They're pushing. They're using their chest. They're using their deltoids. They're using their biceps. Um, They're using bracing angles on their legs. They they turn their legs into A-frames. It would be wrong to think that this level this skill level is um, correlates to low rank. It doesn't. I have seen this at um, very high Shihan level. People just pushing and pulling. Level two for me is the application of uh, generic external fulcrums and levers. It's, it's a matter of using geometry to generate mechanical advantages. So external geometric applications, primarily utilizing fulcrums and levers. That's the next skill level in Aikido. And here, some practitioners can ease up on their bicep, deltoid, pectoral usage and the use of their bracing angles because the levers give them enough of a mechanical advantage that they can move the mass of uke. But if you look closely, they're still using those muscles in that way. But you see that we're already seeing them. I'm noting them as more skilled and we're also seeing a reduction in the utilization of strength. The next level for me is a kind of internal organization. Um, But one where you are supporting the external fulcrums and levers or those external geometries by which you generate a mechanical advantage 
you're supporting that with an internal organization. And when a practitioner does this, they can reduce even further their utilization of various isolated muscle groups. But again, what are you noting? You're noting a reduction in an application of strength. And then the higher level for me is um, hard to put into words, but it's where that internal organization is all that is being utilized. The fulcrums and levers, even when the hands are in the, the arms and the hands are in the same place, is actually not the engine for manipulating matter. That something else is inside. And when you get there, um, you can even more reduce your application of strength. And in fact, uh, what you see here and what has been said by, by many others, and, and it is a decent way of understanding things, is that the initial early phases of applying strength actually inhibit and prevent one from reaching the higher level. Because the higher level... Uh, actually requires um, the absence of that isolating muscle tension, which is commonly associated with an application of strength. So, when you look at that, I don't think anybody climbs this sequence towards higher and higher skill levels by being weak. I think that the capacity for strength not only supports all the things that I mentioned earlier, but I think the capacity for strength must be present for the choice to not use it. I think if you don't have a capacity for strength, you can't not use strength. You're just weak. And in that sense, strength is very much integral to skill development entirely outside of everything I said at the beginning. It's kind of like, um, it's kind of analogous to pacifism. So if I am nonviolent, it presumes that I have a capacity for violence and therefore my choice to be nonviolent is a matter of will. If my nonviolence or my so-called nonviolence is merely a matter of 
weakness, of an inability to be violent. I'm not nonviolent. I'm just a victim. And so, likewise, I cannot learn, I cannot do Aiki. I cannot learn Aiki. I cannot be Aiki. But through the capacity to be other. This concludes this episode of Budo the Way of the Warrior podcast. For more information, please visit sentiencenter.com. S E N S H I N C E N T E R.com. Or find us at Facebook at Sension Center and on our YouTube channel at Sension One. Thank you for listening.